Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast in the fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez, our co-host today, Dave Anderson. And today, it is part three of the Pragmatic Folk series, The Dogmatic Developer. Yeah, it's the final chapter. What are things that we must have on the table? What are some things that we will follow? And what are some of the problems of said dogmatic developer? Yeah, when maybe you shouldn't, you know, wear your seatbelt on a burning plane and other important bits of wisdom from Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas. Yeah, I think you may have heard this before in time, but the answer to nearly every developer to a question would be, it depends. <laughs> and we get to learn and have more context on why that answer is a beautiful answer to give to any question that you may <laughs> need to answer. Right, cool. What are some of the techniques in this book that you wouldn't be pragmatic on, that you wouldn't like leave on the table, or you'd run the other way? Like, you know, if someone didn't have version control, just get out of there. The only thing that I would run away from is a team that said, this is how we do it. We know what works for us, and we're going to do it this way until we die. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anything else is totally fair game. If the team says, I don't want to use version control, I say, great, good, try it, and see how it works. Because for all I know, in their circumstances, it might work better. Who knows? I, for example, I get into a lot of trouble. Um, I don't do anywhere close to as much unit testing as I used to do. I stopped doing it for a while to see what would happen because I wanted to experiment to see if it was actually as useful as I thought it was. And I discovered it didn't make much difference. There are things now that I definitely have learned I should test and I do put tests in for that, but I'm doing a lot less. Now that's me in my particular circumstances. It doesn't apply to everybody, but it's an example of where a lot of people get this religion, right? There's a best way to do something. The dogma. The dogma. And there's every single, whenever anybody says best practice, they're lying. Well, yeah, we, we try to tell folks, every time you say best practice, a kitten dies. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I, we just adopted a dog and I wrote doggy best practices on our chalkboard. Oh, that dog's gone. <laughs> oh, don't tell uh, me that. It's like saying how that, often. You know what? That, that's why it's called dogma. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like saying how long is a piece of string you say this is a best practice well, that's almost meaningless because best practice for who under what circumstances right there's no such thing as best there's this is engineering right at its heart there's trade-offs and consequences. <laughs> that's that's the perfect engineering answer too it depends <laughs> there's trade well and it does it absolutely depends you know that the people who don't use version control it might make perfect sense in their context, in their environment, right? There's, there's almost no rules that are absolutely inviolate. You say, well, you shouldn't run a red light. Generally, that's true, unless you're driving the ambulance. But then mm-hmm. there's a protocol for that, right? You've got the flashing light, you've got the siren. There is a way to do that that makes sense in that mm-hmm. context. Right. You should wear your the safety belt, the seatbelt on an airplane. Normally, that's true. There was one very funny time. I don't know if Dave remembers this, but way back in the in the early aughts, oh yeah, 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 we were yeah. In Denmark, <laughs> Denmark, I think it was Denmark. They have done a conference, and we're climbing onto this little, you know, sort of prop jetty kind of little little tiny plane, and everyone's getting on board and putting their stuff in the little minuscule containers and whatnot. And the steward gets on the phone and says, 
please don't buckle yourselves in yet. We're still refueling the plane. <laughs> the implication being, you might want to leave in a real hurry if things go sideways. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, here's a quote, best practice you should wear the seatbelt. Well, yeah, not always. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it, yeah, it, on the context, I think it does depend on the context. But I do think, like, the idea of best practices is like it worked out for more than average of a given situation. But I do agree in, in your airplane scenario where, like, if you're flying, you put the seatbelt on, but don't always put it on unless you're told to do so. I just think that when the word, I guess, best practice is used, it's like, oh, it worked for many people. So, but we shouldn't think that it'll work for you in your particular instance. Right. You, you got to qualify it. It's like, well, it worked for this size company, this kind of team, this personality. I mean, you have to qualify it with where is this known to work and are we doing the same thing, right? One of the arguments we make in the book is you'll see people these days saying, oh, we want to be like Netflix. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> we'll get 100,000 servers and we'll talk. I mean- right. Right. Yeah. And what works at Netflix, that's a Netflix-shaped problem that they're solving. It's not a U-shaped problem. And even Netflix didn't do it that way when they were smaller or when they were starting or five years ago, and they won't do it the same way five years from now. That's the whole point. And that gets back to this, this whole thread of being dogmatic versus pragmatic, right? We didn't call this the dogmatic developer, right? Right. <laughs> I would buy that book too, though, if you guys wanted to write that. Next <laughs> April first, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get on. But, yeah. but this is the trap that it's so easy for us to fall into because you get comfortable, you get used to your tools, your language, uh, your methodology, your way of doing things, the T and E reports you fill out, what whatever it is, you get used to it, you get comfortable with it. And then you really don't want to change. Change is mentally expensive. You have to throw out your old models, relearn new ones, and somewhere inside your brain, a little manager is saying, dude, that's expensive. I don't want to. It's, it's worse than that. It's worse than that. Because if what you're doing is following the rules, then it's not your fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good point. But <laughs> if, what you, if what you want to do is to try to change stuff, then if you're in an environment that punishes mistakes, you're not going to do that. You're not going to ch- make changes. There's a, a nice quote, the, something along the lines of perfect or perfection is the enemy of good. Mm-hmm. And it's so true that if all you're doing is you're assuming that you've reached some best practice, if you have perfection, then what you're really saying is <laughs> nothing is ever going to change. If this is perfection, then it would be foolish to consider any other way of doing things. So you should always be saying, this is just the way I'm doing it today. And Mm. I want to, you know, and any time you find yourself doing the same thing in terms of like a process or a technique or whatever else for, I don't know, a month, choose a timescale, then deliberately change it. As long as you have feedback in place to say whether the change is better or worse, change it, see what happens. If it's worse, okay, you may have put yourself back half a day over a two-week span. If it's better, you may have learned something that will make you more productive for the rest of your life. And if it's worse, you may have learned something about why it's worse, too. Oh, like. exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I was actually reading a quote about the guy who developed the – so during the Second World War, the German Luftwaffe 
was bombing English cities. And the English needed early warning radar. And they actually were very lucky in that it did it just invent the technology, but it was brand, brand new and really, really flaky. And the guy who actually kind of ran the project told his team explicitly that they had to develop imperfect equipment. And he said the actual quote he had was, give them the third best to go on with because the second best comes too late and the best never comes. <laughs> yeah, I totally feel that. And like for me, that's, that's one of the things I really like about pair programming because if I am by myself, then I can find myself in that trap. And that's a good way. Having someone else there who's like impatient with me, it's a good way to like jigger me out of that like mentality. Well, and and again, this is, this is a good reason why you need to have this continuous discussion with the users because it might be, we need it tomorrow. I don't care how rough it is or, you know, we've got six months. This, this should be beautiful. This should be pristine. You know, we don't need it till then. Okay, fine. I mean, it doesn't, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. It just depends, and you got to find out. <laughs> right. Have that conversation, at least. Don't assume. Yeah. yeah. So, well, it's like there's a, a great phrase for military, commander's intent. So commander's intent is the idea of, of that trying to ask the questions and find out, all right, what is the actual goal we're trying to achieve here? Because, you know, the commander might say, we're going to take that hill. Well, great. Are you going to, like, throw all your men at it, throw all the infantry at it, and try and take it and, 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 and suffer great casualties? Well, No. The reason we want to take that hill is it's a diversion because the real action is happening over here somewhere. Okay, now we have a different strategy. We're just going to make some noise. We're not going to you know, take any risk, lose any lives. You have a very different strategy, very different decisions to make because the intent of the action is different. Even though the actual, you know, the requirement, if you will, is still take that hill but the intent behind it is very different, and now you make very different decisions. Well, and it allows people to make decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, right. that's the key point. So, you know, again, this kind of linear notion of development of we just tell you what to do and, and go type it, that has never worked. That's not the model. That's not how it functions. It has right. to be a conversation, and the developers have to be, you know, have to have this awareness, have to have this conversation, have to know the intent so they can ask the right questions. So what, what are some things that you think have changed greatly from between when you wrote the book initially or, and when it's come out now? Like, is there anything that you've had to like throw out completely? And Oh, absolutely. We, we threw out some low-level stuff, but I think one of the ones that struck me the most was, you know, at the time, the internet was shiny and new and it was a big thing. And literally, the copy edit style of that period said you had to use a capital I for internet because it was <laughs> it was a thing. <laughs> it's like a German noun. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. And so it's, you know, there were some I hate to say it, but there were some mildly embarrassing sections of the book where we were just like, this internet thing is great. You can download languages and run them on your own computer and it's all free and you've got these communities and you know isn't this wonderful? And Yes, I mean, it, it was. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was, it's so wonderful. <laughs> but now you can, you know, do a, a REPL of any language you like right in the browser. Yep, <laughs> it's so different. It's, download it, you know, it and possible. it's not a capital I. It's not a capital I anymore. It's just the net. And yeah, right. Online, so <laughs> just Google's the Google things. It's just in my pocket, you yeah. know. 
sure. So, but that and the whole everything that came with that, you know, it's it's easy enough to say, okay, that's the, you know, it's been a big change, the ubiquitousness, the pervasiveness of the net, but even just looking at you know not having that build machine sitting all dusty in the corner, but being able to drive deployment through version control, which of course you have, you know, just you know doing <laughs> setting a tag and then some machine in the cloud or rest in Virginia, as the case may be, uh, sits there and <laughs> compiles it, pushes it, and it's just, it's just all, it's all off and done. And, you know. Yeah, the, the cloud is a magical place. <laughs> in Preston. In West Virginia, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything associated with that is just, that has been a really, I think, a really huge sea change of just the ubiquitousness of the net and being able to do that kind of thing I mean, you couldn't do that 20 years ago. Right. But at the same time, we have a, a section and the underlying message is don't program by coincidence, which is don't consider a program finished if it suddenly miraculously started working and you're not 100% sure why. <laughs> um, and at the time, you know, there's many examples of that. And one of the examples in the original book was when you were using Microsoft Windows early versions, like 3. whatever, the sequence that you needed to get out some graphics actually on the screen very much depended on your context, but you were basically invalidating rectangles and refreshing and all this kind of stuff. And there were probably a dozen separate calls that each had some influence on that. And I remember times, I mean, the actual thing in the book comes from you know my personal experience where I would sit there and I'd do invalidate Nothing, nothing happened. So I'd add another call and another call and another call. And then suddenly it would just burst into life. Mm. And I would have no idea why. I, you know, what did I do? But I felt I didn't have the time to investigate. And so I would just like leave it like that and move on. And the next time I wanted to draw something, I would cut and paste the six random lines and move them <laughs> to the new place. And yes, now move forward to 2019 and we have exactly the same thing. It's called Stack Overflow. And <laughs> developers just sit there and, you know, many developers' job is basically like people doing patchwork quilts. You know, they'll go out there and they'll get scraps of code and they'll stick them together. And if they work, it's a miracle. And God help them if they ever have to change it. It's, <laughs> ar- it's artisanal. You can't change it. It's just, it's a beautiful <laughs> tapestry. <laughs> it's perfect as it is. It's art. That's, that's what I like to say when I see like a method that's, you know, 300 lines long. I'm like, that's just art right yeah. there. Good Ooh. job. <laughs> oh, man. Changing functionality in that, I wouldn't want to. Uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I had a thought. <laughs> apropos of nothing, that just reminds me of a piece of code Dave and I saw years and years ago where the fellow had a 60-page for loop. <laughs> what? <laughs> Double-spaced? If you printed, printed it out on actual paper, it was about 60 pages of code, so that's... What that'd be like, maybe three thousand lines. Oh, more than that. I remember writing math, but you know, it was eleven thousand lines Ooh. from beginning to end. No, no, no. It no, was no. the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, was, I mean, to be honest, my father built. Think about it. I mean, yes, that's horrendous, but it also means that somewhere there is a team that produced a compiler that actually successfully compiled an eleven thousand line loop, <laughs> which is really pretty miraculous. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand where that comes from, where like you're afraid to touch anything. So it's just, you know, whatever is there stays there. And my stuff is over here. And, you know, like design patterns and things like that. 
I guess, kind of arose from the need to standardize the way to interact with the windows and, and, you know, GUIs and things like that in a more sane way than copy paste and replicating the behavior and like the open closed methodology where you don't have to modify your existing code in order to make new behaviors. But you do, of course, at the end of the day you do. And, and even your own code, I mean, it does take a certain amount of courage to say, all right, I could just bolt this little thing over here on the side and ignore this big stinking pile here in the middle. It takes some courage to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fix this Mm. (laughs) or or try to, or die trying, you know, but you need, you know, and I can't say always do that, you know, charge the hill, man, take courage. No, I mean, it depends obviously, but (laughs) where you can, if you have a choice between, you know, just staying to my little thing over here or fixing an obvious problem, Yes, you should try and fix the problem. And this is something we talk about in the book with broken windows. Because if your project has these things that everyone knows is broken, you know, this isn't a case of you just to disagree with someone else's approach, but everyone knows this thing is broken and everyone's afraid to go in there because it's dark and scary and you don't want to fix it. You know, that's a broken window. Then you break something else. It's like, well, okay, that's okay. We just add it to this. Uh, yeah, but you see, that's not just a broken. That is a an entire derelict apartment building. Yeah. Is what that is, right? <laughs> the, broken, the broken window is the first three lines of code that somebody writes that is clearly bad. Not bad in terms of they were a bad programmer, but it's going to lead to problems. Right. And they say, okay, I'll live with that because it's only three lines of code and I'm really, really busy at the moment and I got a deadline and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And so they leave that code in there. And then the next person comes along and they go, oh, that's pretty ugly. Huh. But it's not my code. I'm not going to fix that right now because I've got other things to do. So I'm just going to add another three lines to it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you go from one broken window to two broken windows to an entire apartment block on fire. Yeah, we had a podcast episode with a friend of ours called Death by a Thousand Ifs. That was one of my favorites, but I, I'm like, oh, I totally get it. It's like, what's another if statement? What's the worst thing that can happen? And so yeah, <laughs> pages later. Yeah. <laughs> a thousand ifs later. Boy. Right. Yeah, that's it. Game well, over. Okay, yeah, I like that one because uh, I teach some classes and when students start doing things with if statements, I say, okay, so think about this. How many paths of your code do you have to test? if you have no if statements. And they say one. And okay, so you have one if statement. They say two. I said three if statements. They say four. So I say 100 if statements. And their eyes glaze over. You know? <laughs> so it's a, it's a really important. Yeah, they didn't even get to a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get to a thousand, please. Yeah. Integer overflow, integer but, overflow. But it really is like, also like pervasive psychologically. Like I, I was working on a code base that wasn't that large, but people were just so afraid to work on it. And I put a bunch of effort in to refactor it. And even after it's been refactored, people are still afraid of it. Like, they're still like, I don't trust it. But it's like, it's okay now. You can change it. It makes a little more sense. But, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's actually a real psychological thing. Fear is contagious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those things. And, and if you've had this thing that people have learned to avoid because it's a horror, yeah, you can tell them you refactor it. You can even show them. But that you know, that kind of mental scarring is still there. It's like, oh, that's... The yeah, end. yeah, it's true. I didn't live through, like, the, the late nights that I had debugging problems with the old And that's situation. why, you know, yeah. you don't want to let that, that snowball start. You know, when you detect those first three lines of code, you got to nip it in the bud, fix it right there, because it is all too easy just to add to the pile. 
And then when you find the pile, it's like, okay, guys, we got it. We have to fix this. We got to take care of this because right. it's not going to get smaller on it. It's like a tumor, right? I mean, it's not going to get smaller <laughs> on its own. You got to go in there and, and have the courage, have the strength to proactively take care of it, or yeah. it's just going to get worse. Get the options. So Andy, Dave, your favorite section of the book, if you could give us one point or one part of the book that you want every single person to learn out of it. What would that be, Andy? Go first. Well, it's again trying to pick your favorite one is like trying to pick your favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love them all. I love the old ones. I love the classics. I love the new ones that we put in. And my opinion will change on, on any given day, but I'm going to go with one of the new ones, which is Don't Outrun Your Headlights, mm. which is a, a cautionary tale of programming within your means. If you're coding, thinking, working at the very edge of your abilities, you've got no headroom. Right? You have there's no room left. If it goes wrong, you don't have any intellectual strength left to fix it, to debug it, to work at it. You can't fortune tell. None of us can see the future. And if you can, I'd like to talk to you a little bit later about the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a species, we are terrible at fortune telling. And yet we try to do that all the time. We're trying to see farther than our headlights go metaphorically speaking. So I think today's favorite tip is don't try to guess farther than you can see. Don't outrun your headlights. Stay within your abilities. Stay within what you can test, what you can figure out, what you can get feedback from. And if you can't get feedback from it, it's probably not something you should be working on or talking about yet. So if you don't have confidence that the test is working, if you don't have confidence that the system is working, you don't have logs or metrics or shiny dashboards or something like that, then you're probably in the dark at that point. Dave, do you have a favorite part as of right now uh, in the book? I do. I do. And it's going to sound a bit weird because neither of us wrote it. (laughs) That's actually a good thing, right? My favorite thing is the thing you don't have to work on. Favorite part of the book actually is... Probably. It's the Ford. We were very, in the original book, Ward Cunningham was kind enough to write a Ford for us. And at the time, he was a very established figure in the industry, very well respected. And we were very, very lucky that he agreed to do that. But going forward, the important thing, certainly to me, I think to both of us, is that what we're writing here is kind of like living advice. It's not just like you know, two old codgers sit down and sort of like say, back in my day, this is how we did things. But instead, we really want to inspire all developers and particularly new developers to try and do this. And so we were really lucky. We got uh, Saron Yatabek, which I think you, have you guys interviewed her yet? Oh, yeah, we have. have. Yeah, friend of the show. Yep. She's fantastic. And her life is dedicated to supporting and encouraging new people entering the industry, giving them the tools and the perspective that they need to succeed. And so when she wrote the forward, first of all, we're very lucky that she agreed to do it. Mm -hmm. But her forward is actually very, I think, on point Mm -hmm. when it talks about the issues of being a new developer. And that's exactly what it was that motivated me, at least, to to update the book. Cool. Awesome. Digging it. How can people acquire the 20th anniversary of the Pragmatic Programmer. So the 20th anniversary edition was available in ebook as of May 8th, 2019. Mm-hmm. You can head over to pragprog.com mm-hmm. and find it from there. You can purchase the ebook, which comes in uh, PDF, EPUB, and Mobi formats. It'll be out in hardcover 
late in September, early October sort of time frame in, in stores a little bit after that. And this time, the first edition was paperback. But one of the comments that we got over the last 20 years was a kind of a funny complaint. People would be like, oh, my copy is so battered and dog-eared and it's got <laughs> pages turned down and sticky notes and I've loaned it out to friends who drove over it and it's got this giant, <laughs> all these, these things happening. These are some well-lived books, copies out there. So we figured we'd give it a little bit uh, more armor, a little fighting chance this go around. And so the 20th anniversary edition is a lovely hardcover. Oh, and nice. out in the fall. And if you purchase the ebook now, you'll get a, a coupon for half off the hardback when it's available. And there's details on our site about that. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely put the link in the show notes. Yeah, I think I had mentioned to the CEO of Stride that we were going to do this interview. And he had mentioned that it'll be required reading once it comes out at hard copy. So both the <laughs> it'll old be in the one library. And, yeah, it'll be in the library. Don't worry about it. You're going to get a ton of orders from this side of New York. Excellent. Excellent. Dirty, all the dirty orders. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dave, how can people contact you? They can just look up PragDave, P-R-A-G-D-A-V-E. And I'm pretty much PragDave on everything. Awesome. Andy? I'm on Twitter at PragmaticAndy. Mm-hmm. Just like it sounds, you know, Andy with a Y, you know, sort of, sort of like that. <laughs> I'm variations all over the place, but if you go to my homepage at toolshed.com, that says what I'm up to lately and whatever fun hobbies I've been working on and new projects and, and stuff like that. Cool. Looks like you got a pile of keyboards back there. I do. They're seeing me on the video feed here. So <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a pile of keyboards in my office. Yeah. Break when you're sitting there and you're stuck and you just need to go and you know hit some keys for a few minutes. Just arpeggiate. Yeah. Well, you know? yeah, just but the keyboard that they're referring to is a piano keyboard, not like a <laughs> typing keyboard, which is <laughs> really cool. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, like in programming, right? Right. Yeah, I've got cool. twelve programming keyboards here, you know, all on, on different. <laughs> I've actually done that in the past, but that was back in the old old days. The Rick Wakeman cool. of us coding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Lee Hackers. <laughs> well, it was, it was wonderful having you guys on. Thank well, you so much. so much for having us. Totally our pleasure. Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and my amazing co-host, Dave Anderson, and me, your host, Michael Nunez, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.